there are researchers who are working on this is how life in general arises in general, um, trying to abstract from Earth's chemistry and look at what life fundamentally is. What is the distinction between when matter is ruled by the laws of physics and when something else kicks in? Um, one of the big challenges to that is that we don't have a theoretical understanding of what life is. Um, I talk in the book and people often ask me about like, we don't have a definition for life. And it's true, we don't. But that's not because we haven't found it yet. It's because life isn't the sort of thing for which definitions are useful. Welcome, dear listeners, to this new book edition of Into the Impossible with author Jamie Green discussing her book, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. If you're a regular listener, you know that your host, Professor Keating, has done many episodes addressing the big questions of life. What is it? How did it start? Are we alone in the universe? Although Brian maintains that life is unique to Earth, in recent years, the discovery of exoplanets and the field of astrobiology has exploded. This discussion covers the possibility of alien life, the origin and nature of life, and the significance of life on Earth. The episode delves into religious and moral questions Jamie grapples with. What would happen to society if life was proven to exist beyond Earth? If you love pondering the big questions like the origin of life, please keep Into the Impossible in your feeds by subscribing and following. Help us evolve by paying it forward with a share to curious friends. To see the video version of this interview, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R Brian Keating, and subscribe there too. There you can find many more episodes on the topics of astrobiology, exoplanets, and the origins of life with Carl Zimmer, Sarah Seeger, Sarah Walker, Sarah Ruckheimer, Lee Cronin, Paul Davies, and more. Let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review like this one on Apple Podcast from KG and BK. Brian's podcast and YouTube channel are great fun for the layman to be introduced to fascinating insights, exhilarating theories, and mind-expanding ideas. Brian has a knack for metaphor to help explain. And now, ponder the possibility of life with Jamie Green on Into the Impossible. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome everybody to what promises to be a very lively and lifelike discussion of the possibility and the actuality of life with none other than friend of the friend of the show, Jamie Green. How are you, Jamie? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Joining us from the spiciest state of all, the <laughs> nutmeg state, yeah, not far from where I had my own origin of life event <laughs> long, long ago. Uh, but you are a good friend and, and a colleague or at least a partial Partial connection to my friend Shelley Wright, an esteemed professor here. One of my highest, uh, greatest accomplishments was that I was on the search committee leading it to hire Shelley. And uh, it's just such a delight to have her. And I wouldn't know about you uh, without her because she tweeted out uh, this wonderful book by her friend Jamie Green. And, uh, and it was on Twitter. And then I try to find you on Twitter just to you know, tweet at you to remind you about this. And I can't find you anymore. What what happened? Did their Twitter bird die or are you still on Twitter? I am. Okay. That's alarming. Maybe I just... My name okay, is we'll very put... easy to misspell. So 
Well, isn't the rule that Jamie as a man is with an IE and with a for a female it's AI? Artificial no. intelligence. No. Oh. No, it's not because a lot of female Jamies also spell it J A M I E. Like in mm. that form it's sort of short for James, but mm. it's also like the dimin- I don't know. Mm. It's, you know, my parents wanted it to be spelled interestingly and they succeeded. Yeah. Yeah, it's got AI and it's got me in it and it's got a J. So that's uh, French too. So it's got everything. It's got I am me and I am also French for artificial intelligence. Jay, it's great to meet you digitally. We've been talking for weeks and weeks now about this uh, possibility of getting you on the show and you said yes. So, Jamie, we pulled out all the stops. We uh, normally have a nice pink hue in the background here at the Into the Impossible studios, but now you'll notice there's a greenish hue. That's just for you. Uh, ah. <laughs> subtle, subtle hint. <laughs> uh, and speaking of visual delights, the cover of this wonderful book is is beautiful. It's artistic and it's mesmerizing. And as we discussed, the first thing I always talk about when I have an author grace me with her presence on my podcast is to judge her book by its cover. So I'm asking you to now take out the copy that you have. I have it in audio and printed form uh, and describe the title, the origin story of the title, the cover art and the subtitle of this wonderful new book. So the possibility of life, I had known that this would be the title. I had had the idea to write a book like this or a book about this topic for over a decade. And that was always the title that I had in mind. Um, That was the title of the essay series that I wrote in like 2017 or so that led to this book Um, because it just, it captures everything about it for me. You know, it's that, it is a phrase that's familiar, you know, oh, the possibility of life on other worlds, the possibility of life, et cetera, et cetera. But I like not putting the of on other worlds on it, you know, and it's just all the possibilities. And that's also what it, means to me that it's not just, oh, what's the possibility of life on Mars? It's what are all of the possibilities of life itself? So that that had always been been with me. The subtitle was, as often happens in publishing, something that was ironed out through a lot of brainstorming between me, my agent, my editor. Um, they really didn't want aliens or extraterrestrials to be like named in the subtitle, I think when I was first writing the book and when I wrote the book proposal, the subtitle was something like How We Imagine Aliens. And my publisher wanted it to be a lot broader. Um, and so I, I sent them a, a bunch of possibilities and they went for this one, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Um, in the UK, it has a slightly different subtitle. Just, they put a U in there they, somewhere. They put an extra, no, extraneous U. Although they say Cosmos, um, fantastic. How do they say like uh, co- Cosmos? I don't know. They they pronounce Cosmos in a way that I wouldn't expect, but it's just um, huh. searching for kinship in the cosmos is the UK ah, subtitle. And um, okay, yeah, the UK. So the book came out in the UK in the Commonwealth the same week it did in the US, but it has the different subtitle and a totally different cover. 
which even like further abstracts the alienness. Like all mm-hmm. of this looks like it reminds reminds me of the Burgess Shale. Like it looks like ancient, you know, um, flora and fauna. But they're all fantastical, you know, combinations of of real things. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like this the UK cover really echoes the cover for um, Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled Life, which is a book that I adore. And that my UK publisher was using as a comp title. And I was like, I hadn't read it at that point. And I was like, okay, this is a book about fungi. Like, I get that it was a big seller and you want to compare my book. And then I read it and I was like, oh, no, this is actually, even though it's about fungi, a very similar approach of just looking at the scientific question through the science and also through what it means to us as people. Um, so I was like, yeah, I am happy for the cover in the UK to sort of um, echo or evoke associations with that book. But in the US, um, it's this lovely sort of illustrated cover. Um, and I very early on in the process, because I am a bossy overachiever, um, created a mood board for covers for my publisher before mm. they had you know, even asked, because I wanted to make sure that it didn't look just like an astronomy book, that when you looked at the shelf, and I knew it would be on the science shelf, but I wanted it to be clear that it is about science, but is also about culture, about meaning. Um, I wanted it to feel a little more literary, sort of that like Mm -hmm. if someone loves reading essays, that they'll know that this is a book for them. So I made this Mm -hmm. mood board with a lot of art and some covers that I liked. I knew that I didn't want it to be like black and navy blue, you know, which Mm -hmm. is what so many- most books. Right. Um, Like this book behind me that you can- can't I see, mean, that's my it's, my first book. It's yes. right Blue and because red it's and really it's conveying specifically what it is, and this I ha- have a lot of science and a lot about space, but it's not an astronomy book. Um, no, and so actually, this image on the cover is by an artist <clears throat> who I follow on Instagram, and I put some of her work in the mood board, and my publisher decided they really liked her work, and. Um, said go to her site and pick three to five images that I feel like would be a good background. And this was one of them. Uh, Or is this the second one? There was a lot of back and forth because the first cover that they put together with her work was beautiful and looked like an astronomy book. Mm. And I was like, this is a beautiful cover, but it's not the right cover for my book. Um, And so it took a lot of work to to get the right feeling, to find the right fonts that were like serious enough, but not too serious. I really cared about the mood, but I, I love this cover so much. You know, the fact that it's a view of a planet and stars, but it has a very illustrated feeling. Um, mm-hmm. and has it's those, whimsical, but it's also exactly evocative, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, has has pinks and oranges, and in addition to the the requisite dark purple and the star field. So, That's I right. yeah, I uh, I love it very much. Well, I appreciate you setting the record for describing and judging the book by its cover because normally when I have somebody on, they say, oh, my publisher chose it and they told me what title it was. But yeah, it sounds like you, like me, are a little bit of a control freak when mm-hmm. it comes to books, especially your first book, like your yeah. first kid. You tend to over control them, <laughs> but uh, you'll loosen up if you if you do have more children, I found. Um, so behind you, uh, you don't have to pull it out, is a book by past guest uh, uh, I should say, husband and father of past guest uh, 
Sasha Sagan mm. and Andrurian, and that's Cosmos. And Cosmos makes a not insignificant no. <laughs> role in this book. And I want to read a quote that I'd never heard before I read your lovely book. And it was, um, it is the following here. It says, Carl said in 1973, this is incredible. He was talking about an encyclopedia for constructing or discovering life. He quoted Thomas Carlyle. And he says, a somewhat crusty old fellow, upon thinking about the stars, said, a sad spectacle, if they be inhabited. What scope for misery and folly? If they are not inhabited, what a waste of space. And of course, that plays a big role in the movie Contact, featuring probably um, uh, the, the caricature of past guest and friend of the show, Jill Tarter, as you talk about in the book. But uh, Sagan says, I suspect we'll be talking about this. Is it possible that in a universe teeming with stars and planets, there is not a multitude of other inhabited worlds. And if there is a multitude of inhabited worlds, Carl said, then what is the nature of their inhabitants? And what are the possible aspects of our contact with them? I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a skeptic. I don't believe, uh, I, I believe with very high levels of confidence that not only is there no technological life elsewhere in the universe, but there may not be any other life in the universe besides that which came from Earth via a process you discuss called panspermia. We'll get into that. Uh, where do you fall? Are you? Did you come away from this book? Did you enter this book with a preconceived notion that you're going to fulfill the Ellie Arroway like dreams, <laughs> uh, your favorite, your favorite name in all of uh, literary history? Uh, did you come away with a hope? You know, you'd prove it, or did you come away somehow discouraged? Uh, what, what? How did you start off to chart your own? non-biological, but your evolution, ideological evolution throughout the writing of this book? I think, um, you know, the so much of the premise of the book and the, the whole introduction is about, like, most books on this topic are about skepticism versus optimism, about likely, unlikely, common, rare, unique, you know, what are the odds? Um, and I really set for myself the goal of not talking about odds in the book, that part of what the title means to me is that I want to look at what are the possibilities. If there is life, what might it be like? If there is life, how could we understand it? How could it help us understand life on earth? What would we learn from it? Um, so I do think that in making that decision – I sort of ha it's sort of like inhabiting a role that you're acting. I really came to take up that mindset where it's it's like a real agnosticism where it's like I don't know. Um <laughs> and I do think that when people including Carl Sagan himself say how could there be so many stars, so many planets and no other life? My answer is like, well, there absolutely could be. You know, this yes. happened with with a JWST deep field image. People would post that and say, look at all this. How could we be alone? And I'm like, well, very easily. Let me tell you how. Um, yes. And, and especially when people mean, how could we be the only conscious animals? How could we be the only technological civilization? Um, quite possibly. That's one where... Yeah. The more I learned, especially in terms of learning about the origin of life and the origin of complex life, uh, it does seem li like my feeling is 
we don't really know because we only have one example. And so we have no idea if, you know, this is the common way for planets to go or what. Um, but the the one thing that I think we can extrapolate from is that life seems to have emerged on Earth just about as soon as conditions allowed. Um and that to me makes it feel like you only have to roll the dice a few times before you get life. But then going from roughly bacterial life to cells with complex inner structures, which were able to evolve multicellularity, structural complexity, you know, plants, animals, people, all of that, it was about two billion years. And that's a lot of rolling the dice. And I feel like the origin of eukaryotic cells feels lucky. There are Magical. very smart people who argue the in the other direction. Um, you know, I am not a evolutionary biologist. I'm, I'm, I don't have a PhD in anything. But, you mm. know, it just... It's so hard to say because so much of the optimism is inspired by desire. Yeah, it's a faith-based statement. That's yeah, right. it's. I don't think of it as a faith-based statement because I don't think it's based on no information, but it is inspired by what we want to be true, which I guess is a way that you could look at faith. Yeah, um, there's belief versus evidence. Like I would say, I don't believe in gravity. I have evidence for gravity. Right. Um, and, and getting back to the point of the waste of space that you talk about, in the book, I, I point out, you know, I've been to Antarctica twice, and uh, Antarctica is one seventh of the continents of the whole planet Earth. Uh, there is life there. Uh, there's about, you know, a couple billion seagull like creatures that are like on seagulls on steroids called skuas. There's a couple of billion penguins, but those are only at the coast. At the South Pole, there's nothing. There's just people. And those are brought by large military cargo planes. So if you just said, I'm going to take a flat prior distribution. I'm going to say that equal probability of being on equal landmass, where there's a continent in Antarctica, uh, you'd be horribly wrong. The biomass is, is, is insignificant compared to the continental mass. It's bigger than the United States almost. So, you know, for those reasons, I don't think that a you know, possibility, you know, to use a, a, the loaded word in your title, which I, which I love, but that doesn't connote probability. Uh, and they're very different things, right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, once you get into... If the universe is infinite, like yes, that when you when yeah. it's infinite, then you have a infinite me, right? So you, then right. you definitely have other. <laughs> but talking about just sort of practically, um, our galaxy, yeah, right. Because also, if we're hoping for a detection or communication, it's almost entirely constrained to the galaxy. Um, there has been work. Um, Jason Wright did some searching for signs of possible like basically like mega civilizations in other galaxies. So there would be ways to detect that. But for the most part, we're talking about just within our galaxy. Um, I also think that there's something about when we look at all that space and we say, well, surely there must be life if there's that much space. Otherwise, what a waste of space. That rests on this assumption that life is the purpose of the universe, yeah, which is a, a very logical statement. That's exactly. Right. Exactly. And, um, you know, I, I I wrote a piece when those first JWST images came out about that impulse to see all that vastness and say, surely there must be something else. Um, and I spoke to an anthropologist, Lisa Masseri at Yale, who studies um, 
you know, how we engage with space and science and technology. And she said something fantastic, which was, look at these galaxies. They have their own relationships, like gravitational relationships between each other. They don't need us to be meaningful, to have stuff going on. You know, we are not necessarily the point. There's other stuff happening. And I, I found that just really a really like moving way of looking at it because we look for meaning in the universe. um, And one of the ways we do that is by looking for life elsewhere in the cosmos. But I think also noticing and observing and recognizing the absence of life or the things that are other than life is also really important. Why, why do you say that? I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing, but I think there's, there's this notion. I've talked to a lot of atheists uh, on this podcast and listened to many, you know, uh, people like Sam Harris or uh, e- even this, this person uh, wrote this book called uh, Four Thousand Weeks. Uh, um, uh, th- blanking on his name, he's a philosopher, maybe Oliver Berkman. That's his name, and he talks about like what's called cosmic insignificance therapy. <laughs> that. The fact that we're so small compared to, you know, let alone the galaxy of the universe, but we're small compared to a, to the planet Jupiter. But uh, what does that matter? I mean, a tiny little virus, 1,000th the diameter of the human hair, shut down the entire planet for the better part of three years. So size is irrelevant. Uh, if you're talking about like lifetime, you know, we live 75 years. Okay, so the Galapagos tortoise that lives 160 years, is that more significant than us? I find with atheists, they're kind of they're kind of consumed. They say, oh, I see this Hubble deep field or Webb deep field, as you're discussing, and I'm just so filled with awe and, and, and it just gives me meaning. And I'm where do you get your meaning from as an atheist necessarily? And I don't know your your theology, and that's not the point of this question, but how do you react to those statements that 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 somehow gives you know, gives, um, uh, obviates the teleological purpose that you just mentioned by saying, oh, well, it's so vast and we're so insignificant. I don't find that very convincing. It's for me, it's not about insignificance. And I find my meaning on earth engaging with, <laughs> you know, and, and that was also part of the process that I went through writing this book was really coming to appreciate life on earth so much more, which is another part of my, mm. like, eh, I don't care. Um, you know, it's wonderful to think about and it's fascinating to think about, but I don't need the answers from off world. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but I I find contemplating that vastness I find it beautiful rather than meaningful, where it doesn't change how I live my life. Um it's sort of like it's the sublime a little bit, which I know is related to a sense of insignificance. Um, I think it's it's an appreciation not of just aesthetic beauty, but of of the diversity of existence. That life on Earth, there's so much going on. There's so much life. We have so much occupying ourselves every day. Our daily concerns, political concerns science relationships like more than any one person can handle (laughs) and then there's so much more beyond that that it's so I think it's a diversity thing where Lisa Masseri this anthropologist was specifically Mm -hmm. talking about one of the early JWST images which is of Stefan's quintet which is Mm -hmm. five galaxies 
four of which are gravitationally interacting, the fifth of which is just like in our view, um, but is not actually part of what's going on. And she talked about how we have an image that shows us that these galaxies have some sort of relationship physically. They are in motion. They are affecting each other, changing each other. And recognizing that alienness of physics, of astronomy, it's it's sort of like it takes me out of myself for a second to realize that mm-hmm. there is something so big and so different happening there. It's sort of the same thing like, um, you know, thinking about uh, a different, you know, um, a bat, for example, or an octopus or some earth creature that because of their environment and their different senses has an incomprehensibly different experience of the world. Trying to imagine that is also a very meaningful act for me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a similar thing of like trying to connect with things that actually can't be connected with. That's right. Yeah, I, I agree for sure. And I think, you know, there's this notion that as the more we know, we're sort of endowed with with these abilities to basically make ourselves inured to the awe and majesty. And, you know, I would say scientists are kind of like on a daily basis, we see the equivalent of a Grand Canyon or, you know, like you said, the Stephens Quintet. And, and you're looking at things that are billions or, you know, hundreds of millions of light years away. We're talking about speculation in my field and the cosmic microwave background and the inflationary epoch when the universe might have come into existence a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And oh, yeah, we just, uh, that's literally what I get paid to do. So a lot of times, an ordinary, normal person who's not a scientist, you know, they see the Grand Canyon. This is awesome. Literally, it fills you with awe. Scientists, geologists sees and says, oh, that's uplift. That's a schist formation and, and so forth. Um, but getting back to, uh, to the book, it has, uh, it has a thematic kind of development where you start from you know, more primitive ideas and you move into more very advanced ideas leading up to technology and so forth. I wonder, what would it take you? You detailed, and I love this because I, I often bring this up with my friends. I say, what would happen the day after life, alien life is discovered? Let's, I'll suspend my disbelief. I'll say, and I'll ask Sean Carroll or somebody, I'll say, what would happen? And, and they'll answer, oh, it would be life transforming. But I say, no, it wouldn't. Nothing would happen. The next day, two days later, nothing would happen. I'd say the next day, something. Yeah, it would be like, but, and there's proof of it because you detail seven different events claim discoveries of extraterrestrial life or intelligence (laughs) in the last 50 years of the Drake equation alone. One of those is in the movie Contact. It's actually not CGI, right? Bill Clinton Mm -hmm. is standing on the White House. This discovery, if it goes down, it will be the greatest discovery. This rock speaks to us. And that was a real meteorite, which by the way, if you have a .edu email address, you can get a real meteorite from uh, briankeating.com. I have a meteorite email address. Uh, then go for it. I will send you one. Uh, so it's all my students that I want to uh, encourage to to uh, take pay advantage of these awesome authors I get to have on. So until maybe twenty, you know, seventeen or something, that was still sort of hotly contested. Is it this or in scientific circles? In other words, for uh, two decades, people lived with the notion that that the pub- public had in their mind that alien life had been discovered, and yet it hadn't, and nothing changed. So. Do you, how do you feel about these from the wow signal to, um, uh, to things like uh, the, the phosphine life that past guest Sarah Seeger 
discussed on my podcast not long ago, uh, which goes into the, I, I would say it appears on page A1, you know, the New York Times above the fold. Uh, and then uh, when the retraction comes, if it ever comes, it's on page C17 of the Saturday paper that nobody reads. So what do we do about this? The hype cycle of alien life. It's it's a real challenge because like, it's how science works. There is like the the phosphine paper that all, you know, unless someone is being extremely irresponsible, they're saying we found an interesting signal or artifact and we think that we, our team, has done the best that we can to eliminate other to, you know, um, cross off the list all the other known sources for phosphine or ways that a rock might look like this or uh, sources for this signal. But, um, you know, further work is required. There has not, you know, the phosphine paper didn't say we found life on Venus, but it's exciting and there isn't that much room for nuance in headlines. So mm -hmm. I don't really know. I do, you know, it is sort of a problem, not even a problem. It's just like, it's how journalism works. Um, it's how, it's what people want to talk about. So I don't know. I don't have a solution for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember there was a leak of like just a couple months after the phosphine story broke. I think it was the guardian leaked that, um, the mm -hmm. breakthrough team at, Berkeley had found a signal that was clearly technological and they hadn't yet figured out what was up with it. And that yes. made big news. And everyone on that team, I assume, was pretty frustrated because they're like, we weren't ready to talk about this. Um, and that made lots of headlines. And then I only found out that they had figured out the earthly origin of that technological signal because someone tweeted from the conference presentation that the researcher gave saying, oh, yeah, we figured out it was, you know, whatever it was on Earth. Like that made no headlines whatsoever. And um, that's very tricky. But as for what would happen, I think it also really depends on what the find is. Is it a microbe on Mars? It does, is it a fossilized microbe on Mars or, you know, mm -hmm. something kicking around in the clouds of Venus versus a signal of clear technological origin or other proof of a technological civilization? Absolutely. Yeah. Hugely different meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and... I, I think no matter what, though, there are going to be people who don't care for whom it doesn't affect their lives. There are going to be people who care and are frustrated that there isn't more information or anything to do about it. I think it's extremely mm -hmm. unlikely that even if we do find technological evidence that we're going to be able to enter into any sort of conversation, you know, oh, who are you? What do you do? What are you like? Do you have any ideas for climate change? You know, the sort of stuff that Carl Sagan dreamed of. It would just have to be so perfectly lined up, perfectly timed, so close in space, so similar mm -hmm. in cognition and language um, that I think if we find a signal and can't have a conversation, I think a lot of people are going to be let down because that's what both science and science fiction have sort of primed them to hope for. Yeah. 
Yeah, and actually, I think the timing of the 1996, you know, Bill Clinton, Ellie Arroway, you know, uh, uh, mashup, that, that was also time when uh, Dan Golden at NASA was trying to gin up more funding and attention for astrobiology and had been cut uh, and, and so forth. So that was kind of, you know, propitious for them, perhaps. But I think long term, these things do damage ultimately to the researchers who promote it. And, you know, I've talked to Sarah Seeger. She's a good, very good friend. I've had her over. Um, and, uh, and she's, you know, and, and I think she's, she's very cautious and, and capable, but it, it's almost like an irresistible force, especially for young people when they find out, you know, there's just an implication of what they're doing and it kind of transcends. I always say, you know, there's an old joke about professors that we have such heated battles because the stakes are so low. Uh, there's some truth to that. And if you've ever attended a faculty meeting, but, uh, but, but the bottom line is a, a lot of what we do is significant, but it's not, um, it may not be meaningful in that it gives an imbued sense of meaning or purpose to scientists, many of whom who, you know, will say that they're, you know, agnostic or, or, or so forth. And I'm not, I never claim you have to be religious uh, or practice anything to, to have this sense of wa- wonder or awe. Um, I, I will ask you at the end some existential questions of the meaning of life. And Andrewian, who's an atheist as well, you know, she she answered the you know, question of, you know, what, what do you think is the most important piece of advice to your former self? And she said, you know, to, to walk, walk humbly, act justly. Uh, and that was it. And that's a quote from the, the biblical book of Mika. And I said, Anne, you left off the last phrase, which is walk, you know, walk humbly with your God. And she was like, yeah, that's right. I'm going to leave it on. <laughs> but obviously she has tons and tons of meaning and she figures prominently in here. I see this book as sort of half, um, you know, like cultural anthropology. And as you say, by learning about aliens, we're learning about ourselves. Do you think that is um, that is enough sort of in, in a sense, like is it enough to catapult it from being culturally important but not uh, necessarily as maybe scientifically well-respected. As you know, Carl Sagan never got inducted into the National Academy of Sciences, which he's definitely deserved. He was a phenomenal scientist. And you outlined many of the scientific advancements and achievements. Um, do you think that there is still this you know, prosthetic forehead problem <laughs> of aliens that, that Adam Frank has, has spoken about? He's also in the book. Uh, do you think that it can be made completely legitimate, like, say, high-energy particle physics, if you are dealing with you know, tentacles and, and crashes in Roswell and stuff like that? Well, I mean, I, I think it can, but I think that the legitimate science wouldn't deal with the tentacles and crashes in Roswell. But there is a lot of cultural baggage. I've also heard it called the giggle factor, you know, yes. looking for little green men. Um, mm-hmm. Or women. Yes, or women. little Come green on. people, little green creatures. Green. <laughs> um, it's so tricky. I mean, there are quotes I have in the book that use men to stand in for humans. I'm like, well, that's just, that's what they were saying historically. And the phrase as we yeah, know it is right. little green men. And but the image of little green men is very gender neutral, which is a thing that I'm sure someone other than me has written yeah. about. But I'm just like, I'm not interested in the the UFO stuff. No. There are other books on that. Right. Um, I do think that it has a little bit of the giggle factor. I think there's also the question of what the scientific rigor is. This was a question I had going into it in terms of SETI, which is like, what's the hypothesis? Is it just a search? Because, you know, one of the many various freelance jobs that I have is um, I work with graduate students applying for National Science Foundation graduate fellowships. And I work with them on their research proposals. And I've, through that, come to learn that for that for that grant, the NSF does not like to fund open-ended 
questions. I'm going to go count how many fish are in this lake. I'm going to characterize this, whatever. They really want to see a hypothesis. And that's just something that's gotten in my head as um, a way of showing, I mean, this doesn't apply to the SETI researchers, but like a way of um, critically engaging with the research. I think it's also an act of creativity and imagination to say, here's my hypothesis, here's how I'm designing the experiment. But I made the mistake of saying to a SETI researcher, like a senior researcher, not a graduate student or anything like, well, but this work isn't like hypothesis driven. You're just seeing if there's something out there. And he was like, no, 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 no. This is rigorous hypothesis driven. Mm -hmm. We hypothesize that within this space on the sky, within this frequency space, um, that we will see this sort of signal and we go and test that hypothesis. And so it's sort of like, you know, you have the entire 360 degree physical space of the sky or the galaxy around us and you have all of the various frequencies that you could be listening at and the various times but it's just like what is the difference between that and a sort of open-ended search I don't totally know Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that might be part of the challenge um in terms of, like, is the hypothesis just someone is out there? Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. is a very important scientific question, and it's one worth asking because I don't think that we should assume that no one is out there. We should yes. look, you know, like we have the ability to look. We have barely scratched the surface. And um, if there is someone out there transmitting at us, like, let's, it, I think it would be very foolish to not check right yeah the question is the hawking question that you bring up which is you know whether we should advertise the dinner menu for the residents of 51 pegasus b um i have a lot of questions for my audience i I always solicit questions you can answer them uh rather you can ask me them on uh, youtube in the comments section at dr brian keating on youtube um or on twitter or instagram where I sometimes post stuff and will link to uh, Jamie's lovely feeds there. Now that I know that they are not dead, they are in fact not possibly alive. They are definitely alive. (laughs) Uh, So uh, one question comes from someone named Little Man, and he asks on Twitter, is it reasonable to consider abiogenesis as a science? I know it's an aggressive question and assumptions are being challenged, but the assumptions that that people start with who study this which don't seem to be falsifiable, nor is there any experimentation showing life to no, a non-life to life transition. What am I missing? So what do you say to little man uh, over here uh, on, on Twitter? Yeah. Um, this, is, it, is it legitimate? I, I think it is. I mean, I think the study of the origin of life is a fascinating field to me. And I touch on it in the book and um, am like very interested in continuing to learn and write about it. Um, there is an unanswerable question, which researchers in the field agree is not what they are pursuing and not something that will ever be answered, which is the historical question of how life began on earth. We don't have a time machine. We're not going to know it. Um, (laughs) I mean, in terms of all the sci-fi that I speak for yourself, speak for yourself. All right. If you're working on it, that's cool. But like there's even, there's an episode of Star Trek, the next generation where Q brings Picard back to the moment where he's like right there in that pool. And I'm like, Oh, I wish we could do that. Um, So no one is, really thinking that they're going 
going to say this is how it happened. There are some researchers who are working on being able to say this is how it plausibly could have happened. And we don't even have the answer to that. Then there are researchers who are working on this is how life in general arises in general, um, trying to yes. abstract from Earth's chemistry and look at what life fundamentally is. What is the distinction between when matter is ruled by the laws of physics and when something else kicks in? Um one of the big challenges to that is that we don't have a theoretical understanding of what life is. Um, I talk in the book and people often ask me about like, we don't have a definition for life. And it's true, we don't. But that's not because we haven't found it yet. It's because life isn't the sort of thing for which definitions are useful. And this is drawing on the work of philosopher of science, Carol Cleland, physicist Sarah Walker. I don't want to make it seem like I figured this out myself. Um, no, Sarah's been a guest and Sarah's yeah. been on the show. And so is Lee Cronin and they're both yes, mentioned in the in Exactly. The yeah. And so um, Cleland points out that definitions are useful for understanding what words mean, but they don't tell us fundamentally what like uh, how the universe works so i don't need to know what l-i-f-e means just like saying gravity is the force that holds me to the earth doesn't tell me anything about how the universe works it doesn't help me understand anything scientifically and a de so a definition for life isn't going to actually help and that's why the definition project there's always something is included that you like oh my definition accidentally includes fire or excludes mules because definitions are not useful here. But we don't have a theory of life, and it's questionable whether we can work towards one with only one example. Um, Sarah and Lee are working on developing a theory of life that um, off the idea that what's fundamental about life is complexity and the ability to store information, sort of to have a memory that persists through time. Um, but Cleland says that you just can't do it from one example. You have to get too abstract. You're not actually drawing from specific evidence. And so we have to go about the search for life and the study of the origin of life differently by sort of um, not trying to be too constrained by definitions, but being sort of open-minded, looking for anomalies, things that are sort of maybe lifelike, and then we dig in deeper there. So it is a tricky mm -hmm. field in that we don't have a clear framework yet. And we're sort of trying yes. to find that framework and find evidence to build that framework from and find evidence to support the framework that we don't totally have yet. So that might be the sort of murkiness that was it little man on Twitter was, yep. uh, was talking right. about that. We're sort of yes. trying to design the house and build the house and measure the house all at the same time. Yeah. And so the book is reminiscent of, of you know, uh, other topics that we've talked about, other authors we've had on recently, Carl Zimmer, who wrote a book called Life's Edge. And I'll ask you a question that I asked him and uh, maybe made him squirm a little bit, but we'll see if you'll answer it okay. later on. Uh, you're free not to. Uh, but... Um, but we talk with uh, Ari Kirschenbaum about the, his book, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy. And there are all sorts of hopes that there could be other signatures of life that perhaps are remotely sensible that we could actually detect from Earth. And I, I'm going to ask a question. This is from George Anderson over on YouTube this time. Uh, and he's asking about uh, the fossil and fossil fuels. Which, which plays a role in, in things like Adam um, Frank, who passed guest on the show, Light of the Stars author. 
claims, you know, global warming could be perceived on another planet as evidence of technological life. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm going to I'm going to gloss over that. I usually say, you know, to get to have this conversation on Riverside.fm, not sponsored, hashtag not sponsored yet. that, you know, we're communicating over telecommunications, you know, wireless, uh, wired, you know, over trillions of transistors. None of that would be possible without whale oil, you know, to, <laughs> and and uh, and the death of many trillions and trillions of t- metric tons of fossil life. And so George Anderson's kind of asking a similar question. I mean, how plausible is that to happen on another planet? Uh, that's one question, but he's asking a different question. He's saying, here on Earth, when living things decompose, they leave carbon in layers. The carbon has rock layers that uh, that slide on top of each other during tectonic events, which helps constantly renew our mantle. Are there any other traces of life on other planets that could be used as a biomarker, if not a technomarker, but a biomarker, say plate tectonics on another on an exoplanet? Is that something we could hope to sort of divine in our in our lifetimes um i don't know if there's hope for detecting plate tectonics anywhere outside the solar system um there's i mean we're we're beginning to be able to detect what is in the atmospheres of exoplanets um Mm -hmm. there's work that indicates that we could detect the rotation periods and the um sort of layout of continents just by being in mm-hmm. terms of sort of like light and dark blotches, which is also part yes. of how you see the sp- the spin because you see the stuff moving. Um, but I don't, I haven't heard anything about being able to detect plate tectonics on another planet. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, that, that it's not an idea, well, mm-hmm. but it would what were you going to say? Oh, no, go, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, can you say about your feelings on Adam Frank's, Professor Frank's speculation about global warming tracers? Um, I'm not familiar with that. I'm familiar with his work about sort of conceptually using the idea of an Anthropocene as um, a way to sort of think ourselves through this moment. You know, mm-hmm. his his book, Light of the Stars, I hope that's what it's called. Um, yeah. Yeah, makes the argument that, like, we need to see ourselves within this cosmic community of other civilizations that have hit this bottleneck, this sort of threshold, where our resource use starts making the planet harder for us to live in. And, you know, he models all these different ways that these hypothetical other civilizations, which he argues, like, we should not think of them as hypothetical because he is not a skeptic, pessimist like you. Um Mm-hmm. that not every and then you know when a when a civilization realizes the error of their ways and changes their ways which i wouldn't say we are even at yet some of them are able to make it through <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that's our big big inspiration but yeah i mean i've also heard about looking for techno signatures like an abundance of elemental silicon on the surface of a planet i think that's a jason wright <laughs> idea that on an Earth-like planet, that would immediately combine with oxygen. You would get a lot of rocks. But if you have a lot of elemental silicon detectable, that could be solar panels. That's how you would get that on Earth, right? So these ideas of looking for um, elemental abundances or presences that on Earth only exist because of technology. But the problem with all of these, whether it's biosignatures or technosignatures, is they're never going to to give us a definitive detection. They're always going to be suggestions or signatures because we don't know that some exoplanet 
for whatever reason, doesn't have its own way of keeping a lot of this surprising element in a surprising abundance in the atmosphere, on the surface, um, which just goes back to the problem with the public's expectations for what sort of definitive answers we're going to get. Um, it's related to the abiogenesis thing. We're never going to know historically how it happened on Earth. We're going to know here's how it could have happened. Um, it's interesting you say that because Carl Zimmer in his book, Life's Edge, uh, which we'll get to in just a second, just only tangentially, it's about this show is about your book. But, you know, he really makes it out that, you know, we're, it's, it's incipient, you know, we have, uh, we're about to get it. I <laughs> yeah, to have that right. too. We're about to, yeah, he's uh, your neighbor over there and yeah, uh, in well, he's in New Haven. <laughs> so uh, the nutmeg state produces a lot of spicy authors, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, anyway, the, the claim is that, you know, he visits all these people. He does experiments on platypi and uh, I don't know if that's the plural or whatever. But anyway, he does all these things and experiments. He makes his own DNA from this and that. And he makes a okay, case, we're about to discover it, and there are scientists that are really coming up with a definite. But I like that you're that you're you're, you're not being wishy washy. You're you're taking a stand that this is, and and I'm not saying you're right or he's he's right or you're wrong and he's wrong, but that you know there's a lot of like there are a lot of wishy washy. Well, we'll know it when we see it. You know, it's like pornography, I suppose. Uh, but you know how how can we make progress in a field where there is no definition of what is the thing under study. And he tweeted out, the reason I got him on my podcast, because he tweeted out, imagine if astronomers couldn't agree what a planet was. Uh -oh. you know, that That's where we're at. That's and I said, uh, they I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I got news for you, buddy. Uh, not only is Pluto, you know, kind of still beloved by many of my colleagues and myself, uh, but, but there's no one definition. Anyway, um, so I think it's important to take a stand like you're doing and, and make make these claims. I think it's it's also important to do the research and and to to, to support you know the, these kind of investigations. But as as usual, it's the public is always left in this ambiguous state of well, scientists made life in a laboratory here in La Jolla and uh, at Craig Ventner's laboratory. No, they didn't. They started with a living cell and they they extracted some Golgi bodies and whatever they do over there, uh, and they made it into something. So, uh, or you know that the meteorites that we talked about, or the six six other signatures that you talk about in this book, and so. It's a very precarious thing, but I think scientists have to be careful because if we're not, the public will lose interest, they'll lose support, and we'll be out of a job. So <laughs> anyway, not expecting you to, to necessarily reply to that. We have more questions from the audience. If, unless, Do you want to follow up or No, I mean, question? I think it's – yeah, let's take another question. Okay. Given that this is from my friend Bernie Taylor, who's a cultural anthropologist, kind of independent, given that the Drake equation is based on a statistical analysis of life in our solar system – can the same ex uh, experience be numerically simulated or projected into the cosmos unless there are exactly the same astronomical conditions? I don't understand the first part of that because the that saying that it's based on, you know, what we know on Earth, the Drake equation isn't based on that. I would say potential answers to the Drake equation when people try to fill in the variables for the Drake equation. Mm -hmm. They sometimes try to extrapolate from Earth. But the Drake equation itself, I mean, it wasn't even meant to be solved eventually, right. originally. It was created as an agenda-setting exercise at 
one of the very first SETI meetings, I picture Frank Drake like setting up the chairs in a circle in the room and he was like, oh, what should we talk about today? And he wrote, <laughs> I don't know if the people, if, you know, Carl Sagan and, and whoever else were in their chairs yet or not, but he used it as, to set the agenda where if they wanted to work on trying to detect signals from other civilizations, they needed a reasonable assumption they needed to think that it was reasonable that there might be other civilizations and so then you yes. say okay what determines whether there are other civilizations it's these factors and then that means those are the factors that are necessary to investigate in order to establish the worthwhileness of SETI as a field and so mm -hmm. some of those variables at the time were known, like the approximate rate of star formation. Um, some of them were not known at the time, but are better constrained now, like um, yes. how many stars have planets, how many planets are Earth-like, although you'll get anything from like 2% to 40% for Earth-like, depending right. on whom you ask. And then there's stuff that we absolutely don't know the answer and probably never can know the answer, like what fraction of planets that have life go on to have intelligent life like you would have mm -hmm. to do a survey it was just not it's not plausible unless we're talking extremely far future so yeah i don't think that the drake equation rests on any assumptions other than what frank drake identified as the most important sort of milestones and there are plenty of steps between you know uh life arising and intelligence arising and different people mm -hmm. have made different arguments about oh this is an important factor this is a make or break factor but i don't i don't think that the uh linda billings calls it the drake heuristic which i think is is helpful because it reminds us mm -hmm. that we're not trying to solve it there isn't one answer it's a way of framing discussions that's right Yes, and just another hat tip to our brilliant friend Shelley, who won the Drake Award the the year prior to Frank Drake's passing last year. Um, so I wanted to ask you a controversial question. You're free not to answer okay. it. This is your show, but I asked it in one form or another with Carl Zimmer too. So I figure, why not give it a try? So I, I am Jewish. I, I'm a practicing Jew. And uh, in my religion, there is a clear, you know, mandate that uh, allows a woman or, you know, a person to choose whether or not to abort a fetus at a certain age of development. It's not unlimited. It's not the entirety of their of their pregnancy, as uh, some laws would have it. Um, but I wonder, I've, I've often asked this, uh, you know, and, and it's possible to, to, to do so and to be stronger about that case. In other words, when is it actually killing or taking the life of another human being and when does it not count? Um, forgetting about the actual time scale that's delineated in the Talmud and how they came to it or whatnot, um, I might surmise that you might be pro-choice. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah. So if you're pro-choice. Okay, fine. So this is what I asked Carl, because uh, as well, his book starts off with a quote from Ben Shapiro, who's a, actually a guest and friend of the show. Uh, but he has said things like, life starts at conception, and, and Carl just radically disagrees with that, yeah. but kind of dismisses it because Ben's just a podcaster in his opinion. Anyway. I would like to ask you to do the following thought experiment. We discover unambiguous evidence that there's a fetus and it's on 51 Pegasus, 51B, and it's just sitting there, it's doing its thing. Um, would that, you know, and it, it, so it's life. It's not only life, it's 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 almost like human life. Would, would that cause you to revisit your pro-choice, you know, position? I know like I've had people on my show and we talked about veganism and they actually came to veganism from studying the problem, you know, what is what animals can feel and so forth. 
they reconsidered their eating meat. Um, you know, I, I haven't. I only eat meat. But but anyway, the, the point being, uh, did does investigating life and its and its improbability does that impact things on a daily basis in terms of choice versus not choice? No, not at all. Because I don't know what that fetus on another planet is doing, but I imagine it's not inside the body of a pregnant person who is being potentially forced to carry it, birth it, raise it. Um, you know, my stance on abortion is more about the pregnant person and about bodily autonomy and about being able to choose whether or not you are pregnant or have a child. I have been pregnant. I have had a child. I would not wish that on anyone who does not want to do it. Um, even for someone who wants to do it, it is, it, com it, it, completely overthrows your life. Um, and adoption is not an alternative to pregnancy. Adoption is an alternative to parenting, right? So still being pregnant is, um, it's a bodily autonomy question. And okay. just like you can't force me to give someone a kidney in order to keep them alive, that has nothing to do with their status as a person. You can't force someone to be pregnant. Um, there, it's also not just a biological question. It's incredibly wrapped up with social power structures and who is being given access to abortion and safe abortion. Um, you know, like right. That's why I put yeah. the fetus on. Right, right, right. Like right. when we talk about. <laughs> well, maybe I should rephrase the question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. No, I was going to say. Well, maybe I could rephrase it. Does that make? Did it, would it make you revisit the question of what is life or when life begins, for example? No, because um, it's not like a fetus is part of life. Because bodies are alive, just like my hand is proof of life. But if I cut off my hand, it wouldn't be alive. But I don't want to bring it down to viability either because I don't think – I think that that's – it's just trying to move the goalposts and it's still thinking in the terms of the argument that anti-abortion and anti-choice people are setting where they're saying life begins at conception and pro-choice people say, no, 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 it begins at uh, like 28 weeks. It begins at viability. It's not about when life begins because life is a process. Life is a system. Life is a state of being. Um, this is, it's, it's not, abortion for me isn't a question about life. It's a question about bodily autonomy and power. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. So hopefully we'll uh, look at the constitution of planet 51B. Right. And if, can and I, we'll since see, we're, we'll since, see what we can do. Since we're talking about yeah. abortion, can I just mention a book? Because uh, you you mentioned so many brilliant people you've talked to. I just, I, yeah. once again, did not expect to talk about abortion, but happened to have it on my desk. I know. Um, I, I do <laughs> I have, have a large stack of books on my desk. But this book, You or Someone You Love by Hannah Matthews, is um, okay. the subtitle is Reflections from an Abortion Doula. It's a beautifully written, very thoughtful book that also is just about all of the systems of care that are involved in abortion and giving people the tools and opportunities to choose what life they live. Because I think it's, mm -hmm. it's also more, it's not just about choosing whether or not to become a parent or whether to be pregnant it's really about this sort of like fulfill like self-determination um it's just a really fantastic uh -huh. book and i as someone who okay. have always thought of myself as pro-choice came to understand abortion and its place in our lives even more deeply from that so just wanted to mention that since okay. you brought it up 
All right. We're going to wrap up with a non-controversial question. <laughs> trans rights. Um, trans <laughs> rights, Jamie. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> gun rights. Gun rights, Jamie. Oh, not uh, a thing. Guns I, don't have rights. Just, just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so we always close with a quote from Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who is the namesake of the center that I am associate director of here at UC San Diego, uh, called the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. Love and it. it's a quote that is the following. It is, the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. I like to use that as a springboard to ask my beloved guests, such as you, uh, what advice would you give to yourself as a 20-year-old? Uh, I don't know your age, but maybe you're not 20 anymore. No. But but uh, go back to when you're 20. We have a lot of young people that listen to this show, uh, young men and women. Give them some advice to help them have the courage to do as you have done and go into the impossible. Advice to your former self, please. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, you told me what Andrean said <laughs> in her beautiful partial quote from the Bible. Um, <laughs> mine is, is probably much more specific to what I needed to hear at age 20, but I, I'm going to have to just go with my answer. <laughs> it feels so trite, but um, my answer is stop dieting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, ah, I think that okay. that's... Very, I wish it's something that I could have come to much earlier, but I also think it does connect. I can connect it to bigger ideas, mm -hmm. which is the ways that we waste time on fighting ourselves and trying to make ourselves other than we are rather than embrace ourselves and get to know ourselves and strengthen ourselves and our relationships to ourselves, you know. Um, you know, when when you say venturing into the impossible like you have, like I have, I don't know what exactly that is, but I do know that um, I wish I had wasted less energy and less time reading nutrition labels. Who knows what <laughs> okay. that might have freed up my creativity for. But I, I think it's the that's the specific version of it for me. But the bigger thing it resonates with is... Um, not trying to constrain yourself into a path or a shape that is not the one that your essence is leading you onto. Hmm. Well, Jamie, I have good news for you. If you'll subscribe to my newsletter, pay my seminar fee of 99 bucks a week, I will give you the dietary tips that allowed me to drop five pounds from my chin to my stomach. So Jamie, <laughs> Green, phenomenal author. No, I think uh, you've done an incredible job with this book. It's it's really delightful. It's moving, especially when you talk about your son. I found that very moving and your father and and, and so forth. And, and, and just echoing the meaning of uh, that you get from tackling the biggest issues that human beings uniquely, as far as we know, I'll, I'll plant the stake. You know, Adam can say whatever he wants. Anyone can say what Jason Wright there's no evidence for life anywhere else but right here. So let's take care of it. Let's imbue each moment with meaning. And this book will help you do that. The Possibility of Life, Jamie Green, a renowned author, uh, reviewed glowingly by past guest a long time ago, Annalee Newitz in the Washington Post as one of the top science books of the year. Thank you so much for having me. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch, inspired and informed by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact 
older than the Earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us reach 150,000 subscribers on YouTube and putting us into the top 1% of science podcasts. Please keep it growing by subscribing and sharing with friends. We love reading your reviews and suggestions. Follow Professor Keating on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and remember to always be curious. Thank you.